Have you ever heard of this group called the Halfway to Hell Club? See any hands raising, so I'm going to guess no. This was a group of men who survived the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, maybe even I've been there before. I've been there. I've walked the whole thing with my family a long time ago. Uh, it is about, it's 220 feet high. It's 1.7 miles long. And uh, during that time, it was the longest bridge ever made. So it had that record for uh, a brief period of time. Um, during the Great Depression, uh, about a quarter of Americans were out of work. So you had options. You can do some kind of job. And if you're thinking, man, I don't have any options, why not just risk it making this crazy long bridge, right? Well, it's a lot of people did. So due to the heights, uh, due to the windy conditions, and just the sheer terror of working on this bridge, it was a deadly task. So if you don't have a job, why not risk, right? Uh, there were stats before this that the Oakland Bridge, there were 28 people that died uh, constructing it. And the Brooklyn Bridge had 27 deaths as well. So due to the threat of death and disaster, you can probably imagine that all of these bridges never finish on time. They're always late. They're always delayed. Uh, because men were always scared because they knew, man, if, I mean, if I fall, I'm dead. There's, just, there's no, so why should I work so fast, right? I'm going to fall. But after four years of construction on this bridge in 1937, uh, the chief engineer installed a safety net, which no one had ever thought of, believe it or not. That was not, it's not an idea. It's just a brand new idea. This net saved 19 men who would have fallen to their deaths. And because of the net, the job uh, was actually done 25% quicker. Uh, it cost less money. And naturally, there then had to be a rule that if you're working on the bridge, you cannot jump purposely into the net for fun. Uh, and these men, these 19 men that were saved from their deaths were called the Halfway to Hell Club. So friends, I am convinced that many of us, maybe not today, but at some point in your life, you will have a lacking of assurance. And I think as a Christian, a lack of assurance is a great cause for uh, your sluggishness, maybe in the Christian life, your fears, your doubts in the world, uh, your distress from, from free freely, fearlessly serving the Lord without fear, without consequence, that if you know nothing that I can do will separate me, then I will do whatever I can. I think that's a great cause. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go to Matthew chapter 10. And I think Jesus argues the exact same way. And I want to show to you why I think that. So in Matthew chapter 10, look at verses 16 through 18. This is some of the, the, the starkest words that Jesus says in Matthew to his disciples. Matthew chapter 10, starting verse 16. Listen to this. Behold, I'm sending you out of sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Then go to verse 25. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So you see what Jesus is saying. Be careful. It's going to get really, really, as a Christian, it's going to get really bad. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be hated. So that's the danger. But look at verses 28 through 31, the same time. So after Jesus gives these words of warning, within just a few breaths, Jesus says this, starting in verse 28. And do not fear those. Who are the those? The ones he just told you to be aware of, right? Do not fear them. Do not fear those 
who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So do you see what Jesus is doing? He is leveraging assurance with risk, right? You can risk because it doesn't matter if you are assured you have nothing to worry about. Jesus sees that assurance is kind of like rocket fuel. I mean, think about it. Why, why labor for Christ? If I, if I mess up, I could just plummet to hell the rest of my life. Why, why risk it? If I, if I don't do something right, I'm in trouble as a believer. So I wonder maybe if as a Christian today, you realize that maybe you are sluggish. Maybe you have no assurance. Maybe you feared man, you feared death, you feared of having your faith choked out. And if you're an unbeliever, there is a, a real fear of death that hangs over your head by nature, the Bible says. That one day, death will rip you from this land of ease, and you will stand before the Almighty in judgment. And then what? So that's, that, that's the flip side. Now, if, you, if you know much about First John, you know that John has written this letter for our assurance. He says this many, many times. So my purpose in preaching is very simple. That you would have assurance as a believer, and that would per, uh, provoke within you, create within you a, a steadfastness as a Christian to be faithful. Um, John's written this letter about false teaching. If you look at chapter 5, verse 14 in 1 John, John says he's written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John wants you to know that you have eternal life. So I want to show you very simply three essential marks for having Christian assurance. Things are very simple. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 is very clear. It's probably one of my, my favorite texts on this issue. Uh, it's very, very helpful. So the first mark is that Christians have a new nature. Look at verse 1, and John has two things. First, as a Christian, you have a new identity. Look at verse 1. Very quickly, John says, my little children. So we need to just even just stop there. So John's not just writing to uh, little children, though if you are a little child, he is writing to as well. But he's writing to his church, or the church here. Uh, John clearly has the title of, this is, this is Pastor John writing, right? He's very affectionate. He's very tender. This is what every pastor needs to be towards, towards a congregation. A right? pastor ought not be overbearing or rude or harsh. He ought to be tender and affectionate, right? And John gets this not from himself. He gets this from Jesus. You know, in John 13, Jesus calls his flock little children. He's acting just like Jesus here. So this likely isn't speaking to uh, these, this church being little kids. Probably It could be John being older, which is probably true. But more than likely, John's being a father in the faith. Right? He's acting fatherly to his congregation here. Uh, the word for children means, uh, it's kind of like a nursery term. It means like uh, my, my, my little darlings, my little children. It's a sweet, sweet term of endearment. Paul used the same phrase in 1 Thessalonians where he says, I've been like a nursing mother to your church. So Paul is affectionate to his people like a nursing mother, he says. This is important because as Christians, our identity is no longer estrangement from God, but of intimate love and a familiar relationship with God, our Father. So if you're a Christian, you're no longer a stranger, as we just read, you're no longer a slave, uh, you are a son. You are a son of the Almighty. And because of your union with Christ, by faith, the sonship that Jesus has is automatically extended to you. You are bound up with Christ. What Jesus inherits, you inherit. What Jesus has, you have. 
what he's going to do, you're going to be a part of. Now, today it's very common for us to be offended at things, and maybe this offends you, maybe it doesn't. But, oh, aren't you blank, son? Isn't that your dad? A lot of people don't like that because we like to break free, right? I, I'm my own person. I'm not like my family. I'm different. Uh, but growing up in middle school, um, I like that. When I, in California, my, my dad was the PE teacher. He was the coach. Uh, his dad was once the PE teacher and the coach. So everyone knew Mr. Favre, Mr. Favre. So people would say, hey, you're Favre's son. I was, matter of fact, I am. I'm one of them, yeah. So I got very excited because I knew who my dad was. And people liked my dad. So I was happy to be part of being called Mr. Favre's son. And for the Christian, our first identity must continually and primarily then be that the first thing you are is a son of God the Father. So even the most mature Christians, whether you've been a Christian for 30, 40 years or just a couple years, you are still a little child to God. Do you understand that? This is not an issue of maturity. This is an issue of Compared to God, you are just a little child in the faith, right? That's how far we are from him. But also how loving he is to us. You will never graduate from being a child of God. You will always be a child of the Father. Uh, a man named J.I. Packer wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. So the second thing, first, that we have a new excuse me, a new identity. Now we have a new desire. Look at the, the second part of verse one. So my little children, I'm writing things to you so that you may not sin. So John's affection here for the Christians is very clear. So I, he loves you as Christians. And now he's saying, I have a desire as, as a Christian and a fellow Christian. Your desire, my desire for you is that you may not sin. The phrase, I'm writing these things, appears 10 times in First John. So, there's any, if there's ever a more clear sermon than possibly, it would be John. John's very clear what he's saying is, so that you may not sin. This is John's priority. Now, um, in, in, in a non-Christian world that we live in, uh, we are told that our greatest threats are outside forces. Maybe it's Russia, maybe it's China, maybe it's the culture, maybe it's teachers, maybe it's your parents, whatever. Maybe it's your, 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 your work, your, your mean friends, whatever. But you, you will never be told that your greatest problem is your inward sin. All of us are born both sinful by nature and by nurture, right? Um, we're born loving sin, and we are also in a world that loves the same thing. So sin, sin's priority, then the Bible says, is too heavy, according to Genesis chapter 4. So John is saying here that one of the clearest marks then of a believer is his attitude towards sin. So if you're a Christian... How do you think about sin? Now, for believers, we would rather suffer than have to sin. We would rather lose physical health, though that's difficult, than to part with spiritual health. Well, why is that? Because we're new, right? We're, we're new creatures, the Bible says. We've been born again. We have a new, a new heart, new affections, new desires. We are different than the world, right? So let me ask you a question. If you're a believer, where does being free from sin rank for you in your life? Is a life being more free from sin a top list in your heart? Notice that John's very quick. It's first you're a son and now you should be free from sin. So those are top priorities for John. They should be top for us as well. 
So friends, our, our greatest problem in the world is, is that, that we are told by the world is to have bigger this and better that. But the Bible is very clear. What we should care more about is who we are in Christ and that God would give us a stronger stomach-churning thought about sin. So much so that Jesus says that if your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do with it? You should cut it off, right? You're, if most are probably right-handed. You do everything with your right hand. It's that important, right? I'd, I'd rather offer my left hand. But Jesus says it should be so high you should offer the best you have rather than sin, right? There's a story that Charles Spurgeon once told. And he, he, he says this. Oh, sirs, if I had a dear brother who has been murdered, what would you think of me if I valued the knife, the knife which had crimsoned with his blood? What if I made a friend of the murderer, daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely I too must be accomplice in this crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Do you see what Spurgeon is saying? How can we befriend and treat so lightly the things that our God and Christ died for? So friends, let me encourage you that as a Christian, you have a new nature. Those are the two marks of it. Secondly, you have a new, as a Christian, you have a new advocate. This is the second half of verse one. Verse one is so long. I got to chop it up in fours here, okay? So I'm gonna do my best. You have a new advocate. Look at verse, verse one again. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Good. But listen to this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So if you're in this room, John is saying, so you don't sin, but if anyone does, and if you're like me, your hand goes up and says, good, because I probably already have today, and I'm going to later. So do you have any good news for me? And John does. First, John wants to tell you that you are unrighteous. So John writes these things so that we may not sin, which is great, right? But if you're like me, you are prone to wander. You are a very dumb sheep. You just wander to other things at times. So the Christian then is one who has a new nature, but he still lives in his old flesh, right? The Bible says that a Christian has a, a war within. We have a new nature. We, love, we have a new heart. We love Christ. We have this old body of flesh, just old carcass that we walk around, that we still have this inner fight. So those who are truly Christians, they have a conflict every single day with themselves, Right? Every day, that's, that's the mark of a believer. If there's, if there's no uncomfortableness with sin, there's no conversion. It's just very, the Bible is just so clear. John's very cut and dry here. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18 through 20, Paul talks about, I know what I want to do, but I can't do it. And the things I keep doing are things I don't want to do. What, what's, who's going to save me from this body of death? That's what Paul's talking about. And we know that the penalty of sin for a Christian has been removed. The penalty of sin is God's wrath, God's judgment, right? That's been removed by Christ. Because of that, the power of sin in our life has been weakened. So John knows this. John himself is a sinner just like we are. So maybe it could be said this way, that Christians are not sinless, but a Christian will sin less. That's the mark of a believer. Now, maybe you're looking at this text and you're thinking, okay, who is this anyone? Look at, look at what John says. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So who's, who's the anyone? He's qualifying it for you, right? Who's the, well, it must be any one of the little children, right? It's the ones who, who may not, right? Because John's reminding us that anyone who is a child of the Father, you have an advocate. That's where he's going next. 
But no matter how slippery your walk has been, John has good news for you. I think all of us have probably had those seasons of life where, as a Christian, we, we stand strong, like, kind of like Daniel in the lion's den. No temptation, you're really here. Walking pretty easy. Your Christian life's pretty easy, going pretty well, right? But then oftentimes, some of us will be like Peter when we're met with the little girl who asks us about Jesus, and we run away from a little girl in fear. There's a song that Kelly and I like, and in, in the lyrics it says this, that Judas sold him for 30, but I sell him for less. Isn't that true of us? That though Judas sold Christ for 30, we'll sell him for something much smaller, right? Man's affection, fear, much, much less. But the good news, friends, is that Jesus Christ did not come come to call the righteous ones. He came to call sinners to repentance. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you're going to find that at some point in your life, you will be lacking true righteousness. That in Christ, apart from Christ, there is nothing in you that God approves of, right? Even for the Christian, none of us are righteous because of works of the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says that by works of the law, none of us will be justified. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says that none is righteous. That includes you, that includes me. R.C. Sproul said it this way, that we aren't sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. Do you hear the difference? It's not what you do that makes you a sinner. It's what you are in your courts, who you are as a person, right? So we implore people who are not believers that you would find yourself to be hopeless. I have no hope. As a non-believer, I have no shot of anything apart from God's judgment. And John opens the door for mercy. Look at this second part here in verse two, or verse one, sorry. So we are unrighteous. Now John says the second thing is that Christ is righteous. Look at verse one. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is our assurance, friends. If there's anything good banking your life on from Sunday morning that you've heard, let this verse be it. This is probably the greatest news in the history of the world, that your only assurance you have before God is not you. That's really good news. You need someone else to intercede on your behalf, and no fleshly man will do. No person will do. I once met a person out here at the cemetery who told me that they believe that their loved one who died will intercede for them. That's not the word he used, but he said that they will plead my case before the Lord. And as gently as I could, I had to instruct him, sir, that is just not true. They, that, that's not going to help you. They are just as guilty as you. You need somebody else who is far better. You need an advocate. You need a mediator. The word that John uses here for Advocate is a, a legal advocate. It's like an attorney, someone who speaks for you in a court of law, who holds your portfolio. So it's before the judge, right? Because friends, we have no plea, no righteousness of our own, no merits, not our best spiritual days, not our works, not our good deeds. There's no list of things you have done, no memory of people we are not like that can earn ourselves a place with God. So then how do we have good standing with God? It's the big question, isn't it? Well, look at what John tells you. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the what? It's the righteous, right? Not the decent, not halfway, not mostly good, 
the righteous, right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in Christ, we are as righteous as Christ, as God. We have God's righteousness imputed, given, granted to us. And Jesus stands for you with lasting advocacy, a perfect intercessor. There's a story of Abraham Lincoln when, when he was president. His son, Robert Lincoln, had a close friend who entered the army uh, in, in the very early time uh, as a private. So he entered in on the lower ranks. And Robert Lincoln said to his friend, he said this, Anytime, write to me, and I will intercede with my father and get you something better. So, okay, so you got a pretty good shot. If, you, if you're tired of being a, a runt in the military, you can move up, just write to Lincoln's son, and you'll, you'll, you'll get right in. A few years went by, and they got together, and Robert Lincoln's friend said, You know, I never took advantage of your offer, but you, but you do not know what a comfort it was to me. Listen to this. Often, after a weary march, I would throw myself on the ground and say, If it becomes beyond human endurance, I can write to Bob Lincoln and get relief. I would rather have his intercession than that of the president's cabinet because he is the president's son. Do you see what he's saying? No matter what, no matter how hard his walk was, he knew I could get right to the president. I I, I go right through his son and I get to the highest, most powerful man in this country. Friends, Jesus Christ stands before the Father as your advocate, your attorney. The good news, friends, is that there is not one day where Jesus stands before God and says, look what Cale's done today. Not a single day. He will never say, look how hard he's worked. Look what he did today. Hey, isn't that great? He will never stand before God and plead that. He will never point to my works. He'll never point to my performance, my obedience, my portfolio. Contains none of my own merits. Rather, it contains all of Christ's. Because his word speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If God were to look for one righteous person to spare for their own sake, it would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember that story, Abraham pled, can you find like five? And God says, I'm finding none. That's how it would be. But rather, Jesus Christ is the righteous one for you. Every day, friends, on your best day as a Christian or on your worst day, Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands pleading his righteousness, not your own. He's promoting his name, not yours, his merits, his account, his blood, his life. And that by faith is credited, granted to you. Isn't the Christian life just drastically unfair? There's nothing you can do to change anything about your standing with God. Every single day, if you're a Christian, God says, Christ is perfect, so therefore you are counted perfect. What an easy Christian life we have. What assurance we have. God unites us to his son, just like how two people are one in marriage. God unites us to Christ, so we are one with Christ. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says this, And to the one who does not work, don't do anything for God. Don't try to earn anything for him. That's what Paul's saying. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, just a, a few paragraphs later, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Friends, he is an evergreen of righteousness for you. Isn't that good news? That he is the same yesterday and today and forever. However, to unbelievers, what do we offer to them? What should we tell a non-Christian? If there's one in this room, I would encourage you this, that you need a better plea. That there's nothing that you've done that can impress the Lord. Yours will not do, mine will not do. Just like when Lincoln's son knew, I'm not going to go to the, the, uh, to the president's cabinet, I'm going to go to the sun. Uh, we recognize that there's no angel in heaven, no relatives, no friends, no saints to plead for you. Apart from Christ, you have zero advocates. Rather, you have an accuser who stands before you. So we believe as Christians that because God is holy and good, that he's our creator, that God is holy. And when we just look at him, we recognize that we are sinful, we are guilty, we are condemned. God sends his son who is fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, by the spirit to live a perfectly righteous life for us. The life that you should live every single day. Jesus lived for you. He completed all of God's demands, fulfilled all of God's law. He pleased God when the father looked at his son at baptism. Do you remember what God said to his son? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Every single day, Jesus had that. So on the cross, Jesus suffered for sinners. He died in their stead as if it was them. He took their judgment, absorbed God's wrath for them as the lamb of God. So friends, when Jesus died, he died your death. He took your judgment, the things that you earn every single day, Jesus took for you. He rose on the third day after being buried. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now God commands all men everywhere in this room who are not a Christian to turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ, to reject any claim of any hope in yourself. I'm not good. Nothing can please God in me. To let that go and to cling to Christ by faith and God counts you righteous because of what Christ did, right? Your new advocate speaks a better word. He pardons sinners. So any non-believer, we'd encourage you, we'd call you to turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ today. So this is the second mark John's covered for assurance that you have, a, you have a new nature, first of all. Second, you have a new advocate. And thirdly, a Christian has a new position. Look at verse 2. We're finally in verse 2. I told you I was going to get there. We're in verse 2. So look at verse 2. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. It's a good verse to kind of just burn into your brain. That he is propitiation for our sins. That should be refreshing to you. Uh, the word here refers to kind of like what, what we talk about in the Old Testament about the mercy seat where there'd be blood put on and God would look down upon it and God would have mercy on his people because of the blood offering. This is the same idea of a mercy seat. So Jesus' death and his wrath absorbing, right? Before you and God, there's no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus, not a single drop of anger does God have for a believer. So as a Christian, God never has anger towards you. He has displeasure when you sin, certainly so. But it's not righteous I'm going to punish that evil because I'm angry. It's, it's a father's discipline, right? God never furrows your brow, his, his brow at you. Would you just get along with it? Would you impress me today? Do you ever obey? He never does that to you. You will not be punished for your sins again. God does not play double jeopardy. 
It's good news. All of God's dealing with us are through and in and because of Christ for his glory. Notice here that Jesus is two things in the Old Testament. I mean, he's all things, but he's at least two here. That Jesus is both the offering, so he's the sacrifice that God is pleased with, right? And he's the offerer. He's the one doing it. If you ever read the book of Hebrews, it's a very, very rich book, but I encourage you to read chapters 7 through 10. It talks about Jesus ultimately being everything the Old Testament law was meant to be, including the offering, the offerer, the temple, everything is. Look at Christ, and you see it there. So God views your entire life as a Christian through the lens of Jesus' nail-scarred hands. Just my favorite verse from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17 says this, that God will remember your sins no more. How can an, omnipotent, or I'm sorry, an omniscient God who knows all things look at you and go, I don't remember any of your sins. There's a story that a pastor once told I heard about an Englishman who bought a Rolls Royce. I don't know much about Rolls Royce, but these are very expensive cars, very pricey, beautiful cars. And during that time, it was advertised as a car that would never, ever, 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 ever break down. Well, this man buys it at a large price, and can you guess what happened one day? Broke down. What a bummer, right? Shocker. So what does he do? He calls the company, and they fly down this special mechanic on a helicopter. We we promise it'll break down, so we're going to come repair it. He meets him at his location. He repairs the vehicle, and then the man just simply goes on his way. He gets back in the helicopter and leaves the man with a brand-new fixed car. Well, weeks later, the man realizes, I still have no bill. You know, that's very odd. I should get a bill by now. People like billing people, so I should get a bill here. So he calls. Here's the conversation. He says, I don't have a bill. I just sent it to me, and I can pay. And Rolls-Royce, the company, responds this way. Sir, we are deeply sorry, but we have absolutely no record of anything having ever gone wrong with your car. Do you see how the Father speaks to you, friends? God looks at you in Christ and says, I have no record of anything ever going wrong in your life. Why is that? It's because Christ's record is counted to you. He's a propitiation for your sins. They've been removed. If that doesn't make you want to jump out of your seat, I don't know what does. But every single day, God goes, I have no record of your sins today. There's a professor that died in 1937 from, his, his name is Dr. Drake Gresham Machen. He wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. I encourage you to read it. It's very short. And when he was going to die, he telegrammed his friend uh, at the seminary, John Murray, and he said this. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. So he knew Christ's life when he died. He's good. Nothing to worry about. Secondly and lastly, look where Christ is offered. So first we saw what Christ has removed, namely our wrath. Let's see where Christ is offered. Where is this offer available to? Look at verse 2, the second half. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now here's a question. What is John saying? So you can interpret this in multiple different ways. Some of which are actually wrong. Is John saying that every single person will go to heaven? Will Jesus remove the wrath from all sins? The whole world has no more judgment. 
That's not right. So it, can, so it doesn't mean that, right? It can't, because we know from, just look into 1 John. John says very clear that people do go to, people suffer wrath later, right? John says very clear. And the whole Bible. So we know it can't mean that, right? What it does mean is that Jesus also is not the advocate for every sinner. Namely, does an unbeliever have Jesus Christ as their advocate? Well, no, because there's no union, right? They're still an enemy with Christ, right? There's no, they're not a believer. So rather, it seems to be John is speaking of the, the universal offer of Christ's work, right? That Jesus has propitiated, he's, he's removed wrath from all people, namely all the whole world. So you think about how John talks about it in, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. John says that, that there will be a people from every tongue, tribe, people, nation. So we know that the whole earth, in the sense that there's no distinction, Christ will have a people. Does that make sense? Slave, free, Gentile, Jew, Jesus has promised, I will gather the whole world. There will be no distinction. Not just Jews, all people. I will gather to myself, right? In John chapter 12, Jesus, uh, the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after Jesus. Well, we know it doesn't mean the whole world because people from Spain aren't there. He means Jew and Greek. So John is referring here clearly to no distinction, right? You can, you can offer Christ to anybody and say, he can t- take away wrath for you. Would you come to Christ? He, 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 he can advocate for you, right? That's what we offer. This is the hope of the apostle John. In Acts chapter 18, verses 8 through 10, or I'm sorry, 9 through 10, when John was in Corinth at the church that was very, very struggling, and there was much reviling, the Lord appeared to Paul and said this, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And then Paul stays for another year and a half. So Paul knows there's got to be someone here who's going to come to faith. I know God has done work. Christ has finished his work. Someone will come to faith, right? And the Lord it makes it very clear that somebody that, that he has people that will. So we can take rest, friends, that wherever you preach the gospel, whoever you take it to, that you're preaching, your work, your labor, all of this week's work at Vacation Bible School, none of it was in vain. That God has someone who he is going to ransom, either by our work or another's, right? Christ cannot be out-sinned. Isn't that good? There's no sinner too far away. This is John's third mark of assurance. So friends, let me just end with one word here. That because there is nothing to worry about with your eternal security in Christ, what would you risk for him tomorrow? Let's pray.